Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. I'm Cornelius Wright, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show celebrating over 10 years as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, and I am Jim Sims. In today's broadcast, you'll also hear our perspective on what's relevant in the African-American world of news and local events of interest, all in the next hour here on Bring It On. But first... Fox Channel's American Grit is a bold, aspirational competition series featuring 16 of the country's toughest men and women who split into four teams. They work together to face a variety of military-grade and survival-themed challenges. One of the participants from last season was IU track legend and U.S. Olympian David Neville. As an American sprinter who specializes in the 400 meters and two-time medalist, one of which was gold and the other bronze in the Summer Olympics, an alumnus of Merrillville High School in Merrillville, Indiana. David Neville first competed at Indiana University, where he competed from 2003 until 2006, winning several individual Big Ten conference titles and being named an All-American. He would later become the first individual track and field Olympic medalist out of Indiana University since Willie May won silver in the 110-meter hurdles in 1960. At the 2008 Summer Olympics, Neville won a bronze medal in the men's 400-meter with a time of 44.80 seconds. At the finish line, he dove forward on the wet track to win the bronze by 0.04 seconds. Neville then ran on the 4x400 relay to finish first with an Olympic record time of 2 minutes 55 seconds, 2 minutes, 2.55.39. Neville clocked a split of (laughs) 44.16 seconds. And among his many accomplishments on the track field and on television, David now has embarked upon a noble career as head men's and women's track and field coach at Taylor University in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He joins us this evening to discuss his illustrious track career and experiences as an American Grit participant. Coach David, are you there? I'm here. I'm here. All right. Welcome to Bring It On. Welcome, David. Welcome. (laughs) Good to be here. Hey, man, the first thing I want to know is before we get more into more serious um, issues a little bit is uh, when you dove on that track – how did that taste? <laughs> oh, boy. It did not feel good. If anyone's ever fallen in the middle of a meet or in a race, uh, you would understand. You know, you're, you're going all out and you're giving it everything you have. And uh, sometimes that uh, hard lean at the finish line turns into a little more. Um, I'm just glad it was wet because that, that gave me a little bit of room to slide instead of just <laughs> but, uh, that burn. It's a little worse than carpet burn, I think. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I attended the 72 Olympics in Munich, and, and it was a wonderful experience from the spectator side, just seeing all the different people from all over the world. As a participant, what was that experience like, seeing all the world-class athletes from all over the world? You know, it's, a, it's always a great experience when you get together with people of that caliber. Um, everybody there 
is desiring to go out there, give it their best, and represent their country the best way that they know how. Um, we all put everything we, we have on the line. We spend years training uh, to get to a place like that, um, to be on the world stage. And, uh, you know, to see everybody there, there's a lot of respect um, among everybody. Uh, but, you know, everybody also is out there. We want to win. So, you know, we, we go out there um, each and every day, put it all on the line. And um, it's, it's truly an honor, though to be able to represent the United States of America and uh, to say that, you know, I'm in um, a class of uh, athletes that uh, there are very few of them in the world. And, David, how would you, I don't know if I want to use the term rate, um, but I use track program as far as development um, of Olympians in that caliber. Um, And we followed your career for a while, and, and we are very proud of your success, I'm sure, as you are. Uh, but we're not what I would consider a track factory, if you will, like some of the other schools. But how important was that in your development to get you to the Olympic level heights? Yeah. Well, you know, one of the reasons I chose to come to Indian University was because I knew of the history of Indian University track and field. And uh, right now you may say, you know, that, you know, there's some other schools that are out there that are producing more of those world-class athletes. But, you know, I, I – you know, look at certain people like uh, Sunder Nix um, yes. and, um, you know, some of those guys who came before me who had an opportunity, who competed in the Olympics on that level. Uh, traditionally, IU is known uh, for their distance running. And so, you know, back in the day, um, y- you know, uh, when Sam Bell was coaching, there were some great athletes that were there who were coming through Indiana University track and field. And so I did, I chose IU uh, because of, partly because of the track and field side, but also because of the music side. And so I think that I was developed, uh, you know, my coach, uh, he did a great job. Uh, Ed Bethia, who's still the coach there, the spring coach there now, he did a great job with me, uh, helping me develop, drop my times, um, you know, from high school to through college, taking off over two seconds <laughs> uh, in my development. Uh, so he's a great coach. He's continuing to do great work there. And, um, you know, he's, he's produced some great athletes. One of when I first met you, had the pleasure of meeting you at Second Baptist Church, where Jim and I both attend, and we we watched you grow as a, as a young uh, minister. How important was that side of uh, your upbringing as you tried to me- to mold your track and field educational experience away from home for the first time and just growing as a man? Yeah, uh, well, my faith and my relationship with God was always first and foremost, uh, and I, I would probably say. Uh, towards the end of my career, which would be uh, around my junior year um, at, at Indiana University is when I accepted my call to the ministry. Um, and that's when I really, you know, things began to take a turn with me and understanding, uh, you know, I've really got to use this gift that God's given me on the track. I want to glorify Him with this. And so everything that I did was based out of that based out of knowing that this is a gift that God's given me. Now, how can I use this to put him on the platform? And it's never been, for me, uh, in the sport, I never tried to make it about me, but always tried to see what can I do so I can get on that platform and then proclaim who he is. And I had the opportunity to do that, you know, in the Olympics, being behind the camera and talking to different people. Um, And so that's always been a thrill for me. And when you or obviously being the coach now, uh, I I think what I was thinking is at what point did you foresee you having a career in coaching? And 
uh, in particular in that area or at that level, how do you see the development of young men and women um, from an athletic standpoint? Um, but first of all, I'm interested, how did you, how did coaching come upon you? Yeah, well, I would say probably uh, very soon once I turned professional, I, I kind of started realizing, you know, I think I want to do this uh, after I finish running. You know, I, I want to be able to have a, a career in coaching young men and women at the collegiate level. And one of the reasons behind that was because um, I knew the type of experience that I had. I knew the development that I had. I knew um, the, the, the talent that I was able to develop through uh, competing at a higher level. But also, there were so many life lessons that I was able to gain through the sport of track and field. Um, and so I wanted, wanted to be able to have an impact on the character of young men and women, helping develop them into who I believe God desires for them to be. Um, and being, being able to do that at the collegiate level is one thing that I, I love to do. When I moved out uh, and turned professional and moved out to California and started competing, one one thing that we did within our church was uh, my wife and I, we started a young adult ministry. Um, and the reason behind that was because I realized that that time period where young men and women leave their parents' home for the first time, they go away to college, they have the opportunity to do what it is they want to do, that, 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 that more freedom, um, that there's kind of a void. Um, and so if they grew up in the church and their parents always took them to church and now they are on their own, um, you know, they need to have a way to, uh, to, to live out those things that they learned, those things that they grew up um, having instilled in them. And so I wanted to be able to provide that. And so with coaching at that same level and that same kind of age group, it gives me that opportunity to speak into their lives um, from a spiritual standpoint and help develop their characteristics, but then also to help them athletically, because as an athlete, I want to be able to help as many young men and women to have maybe even the same kind of career that I had or a better career. Um, and so giving back to the sport in that way is something that, uh, that I cherish. All right. Thank you. And for the benefit of our listeners again, I am Jim Sims, and I have the distinct pleasure of sitting next to Mr. Cornelius Wright to share co-host duties. And we are talking this evening with David Neville. Um, I'm looking at the bio, and it it is pretty long, but he is an Indiana University um, alum who is an Olympian, has been on the American Grit television show competition series. Um as wife and family and coaching at Taylor University. Um, and, and from time to time, Dave, we'll do that so folks can kind of keep a track on, on where we are and who we're talking with. Absolutely. David, you mentioned one thing that I've always wondered about. You know, we see a lot of kids with the NBA, professional football, uh, basketball, uh, uh, baseball, etc. You mentioned something about professional track. And for the young listeners out there who are interested in track and field, how can one get into that profession, the monies, agents, how, exactly the professional side of track and field? Explain that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is something that's not really talked about in the forefront that much. And so I had to do a lot of seeking and searching for myself um, when I was in college and towards the end of my career. Um, and I was able to find out some more of the information by other people who were competing at that level that were at Indiana University while I was there. Um, and so... You know, there is there is opportunities with uh, shoe companies as a professional track and field athlete. There's also competitions. Uh, the majority of our competitions are overseas. 
Um, and so we have kind of a whole European circuit that we go and compete on. Um, and there's prize money at all these meets from first place all the way down to um, typically to the last person who's competing. If you can get in the meets and you run well enough, um, you know, there's opportunities for you to, to bring home some cash. And so, now, how much is that prize money, uh, David? Well, it, it varies. So the biggest, um, the biggest competition right now that we have that is a series is called the Diamond League. Um, and the Diamond League, every uh, if you win the Diamond League um, or you win a race in the Diamond League, uh, the prize money is $10,000. And there are, I believe it's six uh, Diamond League races for your event throughout the year, um, throughout the summer months. So you go around and, you know, obviously if you win all of them, that's sixty grand. That's just off the prize money. But then there is a Diamond League a final. So there's a point system that's based on the Diamond League. So for every race that you you're, that you're in, you get a certain number of points. And if you have enough points at the end, you make it to the finals, and then you can win the jackpot. Which I don't I, I don't remember what they change the price to. Uh, it could be a hundred grand or fifty grand, something like that. So you have the opportunity to make money there. But then also, I was sponsored by Nike for six years, um, and so you know you can get a shoe contract. Some people, depending on their talent. They come out of, coming out of college, uh, you know, may come out on a bonuses contract, which basically that just means that you know you go into these different competitions, and depending on how well you do at these competitions, the shoe company will then uh, give you money, and so you kind of live off of bonuses until you get good enough to where you get in these big meets, and the shoe company says, all right, we're going to lock you down, and we're going to actually give you some <laughs> some real money here. <laughs> and then some people. Uh, obviously, uh, the, the premier athletes, if you look at someone like Usain Bolt, you know, they have set contracts that are a, straight out, you know, uh, for the whole year. And coming out of Indian University, I had a shoe contract by Nike um, that my agent was able to uh, get get set up for me. So, I think I want to be an agent. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, we still have a fair amount of time, but we want to make sure that we um, um, be as thorough as we can in talking to you um, as long as we can and as as deeply as we can. Um, can we move on to Fox Channel's American Grit? American Grit. Um, the program where it's bold and it's aspirational and it's a competition series. Um, and I hate to admit it, I, I don't think I've ever seen that. It was Did a bomb. Yeah, I'm right. out a I'm real sorry. Good time. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was following David Weekly on no, his Facebook page. As, was... as my mom was, they don't think hard of me, but I'm pretty busy sometimes. But um, yeah. Um, Give us your perspective or tell us what, what this was all about and um, explain to me what I missed. Yeah, so, well, basically, so what it is, this is military-themed challenges. Um, so things that you could think of people doing in the military, um, you know, whether it be a boot camp situation or a, a situation that could possibly be real life. Uh, those are the type of challenges that we did and we went through. Uh, there were 16 of us. We lived in a house. Um, we were in Northwest, or excuse me, uh, the North, yeah, the Northwest. Uh, so we were just outside of Seattle. That's where we filmed. It was filmed late November, early December, or through December, um, and it was cold. <laughs> uh, it was probably about, I mean, wet and cold, which was what made it worse. It was probably about ranged around 32 uh, to in the low 20s. Mm. Pretty much the whole time we were there. Um, the house we had that we lived in, none of the rooms had heat in them. Uh, so I mean, it was it was it was pretty rough for someone like me. I'm not used to stuff like that. And there are some people that were on the show that you know were more outdoorsy. 
Um, so if you're not outdoorsy, it's not necessarily something that you might do the best at. Um, but some of the challenges, one of the things that we had, uh, the very first challenge we had, we had to run with a, um, there was a team of four. We found out who our teams were, and John Cena is the host uh, of this. Um, and he puts this together with these uh, military cadres. So there's four people who are uh, he- heroes, war heroes, or have, have served uh, for this country, and they are your mentors throughout the competition. So they, uh, they help you figure out how to get through these challenges without actually physically doing anything for you. Um, so uh, my cadre was Noah Galloway. Um, he had, uh, he's, uh, had his arm and his leg um, taken off uh, overseas, um, through, due to an accident, um, and uh, he he guided us through these challenges. So the first thing we had, we're carrying this 120-pound log, four of us running through uh, the woods <laughs> uh, for 3.6 miles, um, and it was a challenge. That was probably one of the toughest things I'd ever done. Um, uh, so you have things like that that are just straight-up physical, and then you have some mental challenges um, where we have to take down uh, tents, and then uh, swim across a lake with our full clothes on, uh, and it's freezing cold. Lake, swim across it, build a wheelbarrow out of just pieces of wood, one wheel, and a uh, and some string, and then reassemble our tents. But the tent bases are actually puzzle pieces. <laughs> uh, and so you had to remember what you took down and how everything went. So mental challenges just like that as well. Uh, uh, but it, it definitely was something that is – uh, very, very hard. Um, one of the hardest things I've ever done, and it's different from track and field training. Definitely different. Um, but it, it was probably just as hard, if not harder, than uh, you know, preparing and, and competing as a professional. For our listening audience, uh, David's being a little bit modest. Team Noah dominated. As a matter of fact, Team <laughs> Noah won the event. And David, you were so, we, we'll get into that a little bit, but let me tell you, these guys dominated this competition. It, it really was incredible. But I do have a first. I think his name was Rob the, on that first series. This was the most cocky individual I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> was that show or was that real? You know, uh, I don't necessarily know what his motives were. Um, I, I, I didn't have that much time to talk to him or, you know, because he was only there for a very, very short period of time. Um, but, you know, that's how he chose to uh, handle himself, and it did not come across well. It, it on did TV. not. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's all I'll say. <laughs> now, now, David, as you mentioned, I mean, you know, you did track and field. There were so many different people in so many different areas of life. Um, when they first told you some of the challenges and things you had to go through, what did you think? And how did this whole thing come about? Yeah, so, well... I, someone found me through Twitter. Uh, casting agency contacted me, and they were like, "Yo, we're you know we're looking for some people who um, put on the show, looking for people who have had some um, you know maybe been at the top of their level with whatever field it is. Basically, people who are kind of in the fitness industry is what they were going after, um, and uh, you know people who feel like they had more to prove or had something left and wanted to do a competition like this. I thought it was a I thought it was a prank at first, you know. I'm like, I don't know if this is real. So I started, you know, doing some research on the company, found out it's, it's a legit company. <laughs> so, uh, you know, applied. They came out, did a backstory, all this stuff. I ended up getting flown out to L.A. for uh, a week 
just to uh, basically do interviews and got a final call back. Um, and so going into the challenges, I was just trying to prepare myself for anything I could think of military. And my, my father, he was he served in the Army. My grandfather, he served in the Air Force. Um, so, you know, I'm asking questions. What do I need to work on? What do I need to learn? I'm running long distance, which I do not do, <laughs> to try to train with extra weight on, um, all kinds of things. Uh, but we never knew what the challenge was until we stepped to the challenge to get ready for. So they hid everything from us. Uh, nobody could tell us anything. And then the moment they took us to the site for the shooting, um, John Cena was standing there, and he had his script ready to go. He's saying all his lines and telling us exactly what we have to do. And then they kind of give us a uh, – after he does his stuff, they give us a breakdown of, all right, this is the safety protocol. This is the rules of the actual challenge. And – action <laughs> and it was like all right you got to figure it out so there was no preparation at all um so some of the challenges i was you know i was like okay i know i got to run uh swimming across that lake was probably the scariest thing i've done uh not knowing what's in that water <laughs> <laughs> and and it being ice cold i mean really ice cold uh but some of the things were fun i mean we got a chance to um repel uh, we got a chance to uh, go across a waterfall, uh, which was crazy. I'm just glad I didn't have to look down at the look down into the into the water. Um, but that was a uh, you know there were some fun challenges that were associated with it also, and then there were some crazy things like uh, trying to navigate through the forest, uh, which took seven hours. That was a seven hour challenge. Nobody knows mm. that uh, unless you're there. But seven hours of trekking through the woods with the compass and trying to race a team to, to get to the end. And, and, you know, praise God I was on a team that we did very, very well and didn't have to go to a lot of elimination. Now, I must ask, you guys really worked well as a unit. And mm -hmm. who put the teams together? Was that John Cena? And once you met, how did you guys seem to mesh? Because you really worked as a unit. And I know those other guys must have really hated you because you guys just <laughs> <laughs> worked it. Yeah. Well, we um, – so the cadre actually, I think before uh, – at the very first episode, we arrived at the base camp, which was the house that we stayed in, and we saw who all the uh, cadre were who were picking us. Um, they then went inside the house, and they discussed among themselves who they wanted, um, and I think they got a chance to look at some of the backstories of the different uh, people who were competing, and they picked – they basically had a draft <laughs> – um, so went through the draft. At least this is what we were told. They went through the draft and uh, and picked the people who they thought worked best. And so Noah Galloway, our um, our um, cadre, he picked each of us and uh, you know made it work that way. And we just happened to <laughs> happened to to work out well. Uh, you know, I think the very first thing we did was we went in and tried to learn about each other, um, each other's backgrounds. And what each other's strengths were, and each of us were there to win, and we weren't there thinking about ourselves individually. We knew we had to do this thing as a team, and that's how we went in with that mindset. I don't know what other people's mindsets were as they went in, but um, we knew we had to work as a team if we wanted to win this this whole challenge, and that's what we did. Well, David, earlier you mentioned the mental aspect, and I would think, um, being military, that there was um, leadership qualities needed or, or some leadership tendencies and 
Yeah. Um, obviously, if you got four people on a team, then at some point somebody's going to have to make a decision that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe best for the team. Was that a, a part of it? And it could be as much mental as physical. Would you? Yeah, I, I would probably say um, it was. I would probably say it was more mental than physical. Um, you know, there were physical challenges that we had to go through. Um, obviously, you know, when you're carrying weights and you're running around all over the place, but um, the mental aspect of, uh, and, and I think the opportunity that we had to get and learn about each other, um, you know, the people that were on my team, we spent so much time together, you know, all of us stayed in the same room together, we stayed in the same house. So when we had downtime, especially if we won a challenge, we were using that time to our advantage. So learning the skills of other people, um, two of the people on my team were very, very outdoorsy. We had the lumberjack <laughs> and we had the fisherwoman. And uh, uh, Claire, who was the fisherwoman, she lived on a boat or, or was on a boat for 20 years uh, working in fishing. Uh, she knows a lot about ropes and about tying knots. And that is something that I've never learned anything about. But uh, in these cha- some of these challenges, we had to, there were some rope tying that had to happen and she knew exactly the type of knot that she had to, to put in the rope to get the log across the bridge if i would have you know uh yielded over to something like that or someone like that who has that knowledge then i knew we weren't going to win the challenge and so i understand when i need to step back and let somebody else take the lead and they understand when they need to step forward and sometimes our our cadre would would tell certain people to lead a certain challenge um when uh, they knew that it was going to be in our strength and one, uh, one thing that oh, was really ahead. impressive for me was that not only the teamwork, but there were a lot of strong women in the group. Yeah. And for our ladies out there, if you hadn't watched the show, this was, I mean, physically, this was a physical challenge. I know the mental aspect. What was it like working with some of the ladies? And what were some of the, because there were some macho men within that group. What was their <laughs> attitudes when they saw themselves getting basically uh, beat by a woman? Yeah, you know, honestly, I don't think that I saw anybody, you know, um, upset about that. Um, we were all about, hey, let's make this thing work, and um, you know, whatever we can do, whatever skills or talents you have, let's put them to use. Uh, I think it was, and and for me, uh, being in the sport of track and field, training side by side with other women, you know, I trained trained for a number of years with Carmelita Jetter, who is still is the fastest woman living, uh, and so. Being around people who are lifting weights, who are squatting, that are deadlifting, that are throwing up clean. <laughs> you know, I've been around those people who are strong, and, and some of the other people have, have done that just as well. And so, um, you know, we're all for, you know, the equality, making sure that everyone is, uh, you know, getting in where they fit in and making it work. And, and we were very supportive. Uh, I think everybody was supportive of, of the women and, uh, you know, nobody taking a back seat and, Everybody just stepping forward and doing their thing. So that showed on the show. So I'm really kind of glad to hear behind the scenes that that was in fact the case. Yeah, it was definitely. <laughs> and before we move on and talk about um, Taylor and your coaching um, start and, and coaching um, <coughs> duties, um, a little birdie just flew in and said that you missed two hundred fifty thousand dollars by ten seconds. <laughs> And that your teammates got the money. I don't know if I was supposed to go there or not. Um, but, you know, this is a news affair show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it, was, it, was, it was tough. Um, 
you know, the challenges you had to get there as a team, um, and really the the only advantage was that if you got there as a team, there were more people that, uh, or there were less people that you had to outlast. And so for for me, um, there were two people that went down after I went out um, from another team, and if I would have held on a little longer then it would have been all three of us standing at the end, and all three of us would have got $250,000. But I did not. um, I did actually just the day prior to that or two days prior to that go through the circus. I got chosen to go through the circus, which is the elimination challenge. Um, And it was brutal. Uh, It was an event called uh, the elliptical, or actually it was the treadmill is what they called it, um, and it was a ladder that was about two, three stories up in the air, high, um, built off of just wood, and you had to start at the very top and climb down the ladder and then climb up and underneath to do the other side using your hands and your feet, um, and we did... Uh, we did about 96 repetitions of that <laughs> before someone had a mental error and they went out of the circus. So um, I was pretty beat up from that, and I think that that is probably the main reason why I couldn't hold on any longer, and a lack of grip strength. So, mm. so tell us that you have built an e- ecliptical or a treadmill for your team at, at Taylor University. <laughs> Tell me you have one of those. <laughs> Let, let's talk about your coaching duties and um, how that came about. And um, um, just talk to us a little bit about that. Um, how much of your knowledge, Olympics and, and IU and all the many coaches and trainers that you've had, um, uh, I just can't imagine that these kids that you're about to coach and uh, the other group that helps you coach them, they're about to learn a whole lot if they haven't already. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you know, I uh, when I was finishing up my track and field career, like I said, I knew I wanted to go into coaching at the collegiate level. Um, and so as I was ending my career, I started looking at some different positions, seeing, you know, were there some things open and available. And uh, the job at Taylor University, which is actually located in Upland, Indiana, which is about uh, about an hour, a little over an hour north of Indy, or about 20 minutes north of um, Muncie. And... Um, I started looking at that position, and I said, well, it's a Christian university, which is great because it gives me the freedom uh, to to say what I want from a spiritual level, and I have to be guarded in that way. Um, but it also is a you know a college coaching position, a uh, head coaching position, um, and it brings us back to Indiana from um, the Los Angeles area. Uh, and so at that moment, at that time, I had a 10-month-old daughter. Um, so my wife and I, we said, well, it'd be great to get back home close to uh, closer to the parents, grandparents. Um, and so I applied for the position, and uh, within a month of officially announcing my retirement from track and field, um, I was hired as the new uh, head coach. And so you know, I truly do believe that that was God working that out in that way um, to bring me back here. And, uh, you know, using – I have an array of different uh, – you know, workouts and and some knowledge from different coaches, as you said, that I've worked with with uh, Coach Badia um, from IU, my my uh, professional track and field coach John Smith out in LA, um, and you know, just I also was a personal trainer in LA um, towards the end of my career, and and had done that for three years, and had been working with some individual athletes uh, from all different sports: basketball, football, uh, tennis. Um, soccer, volleyball, 
as well as track and field and working with a, a track club out there. Um, and so I was able to put and use all that different knowledge to uh, to help me, uh, you know, kind of get started in, in my first year taking over the program and, and great support from my assistant coaches um, who had been there for a couple of years already. Um, and so, you know, I'm just continuing to try to develop myself as a coach, uh, the knowledge that I have uh, by getting uh, getting certified. I was level two certified within my first year. And last summer, um, I got level, or excuse me, level one certified in my first year. And then last year, I uh, became level two certified as a USATF uh, track and field coach. So, uh, you know, I'm just continuing to develop myself, learn more about how I can help these athletes uh, grow, get better, get faster. You know, we've talked, we've talked a lot excuse me, about your professional goals and accomplishments, uh, your personal life. Um, you just mentioned a child, and I hope Ariel's doing fine, but I think that there's some other good news that is going on in your life right now. Yeah, well, I would say I would say so, yeah. We're actually getting ready to have our second child uh, this August, uh, so we're really excited about that, having a, a son. Uh, so, you know, we have our daughter, and now we have our son, so we're, we're just really excited about what God is doing. Uh, I truly do believe that it is a God thing. It is uh, ordained, uh, what He's done in our lives, and there's a lot of things that we've spoken and that we've declared, and that then we've seen God's hand take it uh just when we thought maybe it wasn't going to happen, um, you know, and, and so I'm really a big believer about speaking those things that you believe and those things that you desire, and God hears those things, and then he honors those things, and so I'm really excited about uh, what God's going to do here in a, uh, about two months. <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I really want to thank you for joining us. We've been trying to get this interview together for a while, and and thank you so much. We're so proud of you at Second Baptist uh, following your career, and uh, it's good to talk to you. It is very, very, very good to talk to him. Um, this has been one of our better interviews. It has. It really it's has. It's been one of our better interviews. Um, David, you have any last words uh, that you'd just like to share with us um, as we're about to move on, but want to give you the last moment to just talk to us, all our listeners, or just just holler at us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm grateful. Thank you guys so much for having me. Uh, just to be able to come on here and just share a little bit about my story. Um, you know, like we talked a little bit about with, you know, athletes getting involved in track and field and what it really means and what it really looks like. You know, our sport, uh, that's something that we want to hold on to. I think that the sport of track and field teaches some great life lessons um, about how to, especially how to deal with that adversity. Um, and, um, you know, I went through a lot uh, within my career from my time in high school. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I believed in, you know, um, asked and prayed for certain things and God's blessed blessed my career and now he's given me the opportunity so you know those things that you that you desire those things that you want seek God pray for those things um, and and you know pray that that God's will and his hand would be in it all and I truly do believe that God's gonna bless it and uh, and so you know that's that's kind of the message that I have you know find find where God is in it and uh, let him use you and uh, when you do, uh, he, he can elevate you to places that, you know, you never thought or never dreamed and never imagined you'd be it. All right, and we All can't right. wait to have you back here at some point in time and never doubt that we are a for real radio show that we don't do alternative facts. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, David. Our thanks to thanks. track Olympian David Neville.
who is head men's and women's track and field coach at Taylor University, for joining us this evening to discuss his illustrious track career and experiences as an American Grit participant. And Bring It On has an open submission policy, so if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff, and that email address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address, once again, is bringiton at wfhb.org. Support for WFHB comes from the Writer Film Series. For more than a quarter century, presenting foreign language, independent, and classic American films at locations around Bloomington. Information about this week's screenings at thewriter.com.
You just heard winners from the duo Stanley Clark and George Duke. This song appeared on an album entitled The Clark Duke Project. Stanley Clark is a jazz musician and composer known for his innovative and influential work on double bass and electric bass, as well as for his numerous film and television scores. George Duke was an American musician known as a keyboard pioneer, composer, singer, and producer in both jazz and popular mainstream musical genres. He worked with numerous artists as arranger, music director, writer, and co-writer, record producer, and as a professor of music, he, oh, and as a professor of music. He died on August 5th, 2013. A Bay Area legend, George Duke. Right. To keep up with local news and find out what's happening behind the scenes at WFHB, you're invited to like the WFHB Facebook page. Go to Facebook.com and search for WFHB. Or you can always visit the WFHB News website at WFHB.org slash news. And Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Jim Sims. And I'm Cornelius Wright. Bring It On is Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here at WFHB 91.3 FM and live on the web at WFHB.org. And Indiana's only, well, no, we better not say that again. It's time now to give you the latest perspective on the people, news, and issues affecting the black community. For Bring It On, once again, I am Jim Sims. And I'm Cornelius Wright. All righty. Daryl Wallace to drive number 43 at Pocono, the first African-American in the Cup since 2006. From NBC Sports, we read that Daryl Wallace Jr. will become the fourth African-American to compete in a NASCAR Cup race, driving the number 43 Ford for Ari Almirola this weekend at Pocono Raceway. Richard Petty Motorsports announced Monday. The team stated that Wallace will drive the number 43 while Amarola recovers from injuries suffered in a crash last month. Driving the famed 43 car is an unbelievable opportunity for any race car driver, Wallace in a release from the team. With all that Richard Petty has contributed to the sport, I'm honored to start my first Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series event with this team. I'm incredibly grateful that Ford, Richard Petty Motorsports, and Smithfield have the confidence in me to help fill the seat until Eric fully recovers, which is the most important piece of all of this. Moving up to the Monster Energy Series is a tremendous challenge, but I'm ready to represent this organization, help the 43 team get the best results possible, and prove that I belong at this level. Wallace will be the first African American to start a cup race in more than a decade. Bill Lester, the last African-American to drive in the Cup, competed in two series races in 2006. His last start came June 18, 2006 at Michigan. He finished 32nd. NASCAR Hall of Famer Wendell Scott and Willie T. Ribs are the only other African-Americans to race in NASCAR's premier series since his debut in 1949. And, you know, due to a whole lot of factors, that's a pretty big deal story. Absolutely. So drive, brother, drive. Yes, indeed. The BBC director says people knew about Bill Cosby, but they chose not to care. The Telegraph reports that in the late 80s, 
Bill Cosby was one of the most famous men in America, the creator and star of the hit sitcom The Cosby Show, which had redefined the United States' attitude toward race and class by depicting a comfortably off, tightly knit, aspirational African-American family in the full glare of primetime. For eight years, it was the most watched television show in the country. Off screen, Cosby was renowned for both his celebrity and philanthropy, donating tens of millions of dollars to colleges and universities across the country and mentoring young people in their chosen career paths. Now he stands trial in Pennsylvania, charged with three counts of aggravated sexual assault. Tonight, the story of the 60 women who have come forward to accuse the comedian of sexual abuse dating back several decades is told in a new BBC documentary. Cosby, the fall of an American icon, explores why it took so long for allegations against the entertainer to be taken seriously and hears testimony from the journalists, co-stars, and the accusers who fought for years for their side to be heard. In America, he was iconic in terms of what he did for race. There was initially a squeamishness, I think, amongst white liberals to call him out for what he had allegedly done. As Cliff Huxtable, the Cosby Show's fictional doctor and devoted family man, Cosby became a symbol of hope for an African-American community frequently blighted by the stereotypes of absent fathers and gang crime. You know, I have, uh, I don't know, just growing up since 1950, being American since 1954, I find it very hard to believe that any black man could rape a numerous white women and not get called on it for that many years. But that's just me. No matter who you are. Exactly. Time for the NAACP to elect a woman president. The move would give the 108-year-old organization new relevance at a critical juncture in the nation's social justice movement. In an abrupt move, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People recently voted to remove Cornell William Brooks as president in a so-called system-wide refresh to better confront President Donald Trump, whose white male hegemonic style has upended institutions like the iconic civil rights organization. Meanwhile, Leon W. Russell, chairman of the board, will fill in until a new letter leader is selected. Many would like to to see its restructuring that a group elect a woman president. Since the NAACP has been founded in February 12, 1909, it has yet to have a woman in the highest position in the organization. In case you can't do the math, that's 108 years. Indeed, Lorraine C. Miller served as the interim president after Ben Jealous left the organization in 2013, but no black woman has served, has served as permanent leading role. Those that have had the title of president were still either subordinate to a man or the position was ceremonial. As one of this country's oldest civil rights organizations, leaders should be mindful of the necessity and rewards of gender equality in its fight to adhere to its mission statement to ensure a society in which all individuals have equal rights without discrimination based on race. Moreover, as the NAACP seeks to avoid Obsolences, obsolence in today's political and social climate, bringing a woman to the head of the table isn't just a way to fulfill a quota, but to actually get this done. An official tells News One that women of color would not be excluded from the selection process as they have never been. The official also noted that 
prominent African-American women have served as chairman of the National Board of Directors, including Rosalind M. Brock, who made history in February 2010 when she was unanimously elected as its 14th chairman, becoming the fourth woman to hold the position. Before that, Marilee Evers-Williams was elected to the position in February 1995. Thank you, Cornelius. And that was a look at African-American headline news from around the world for this week. Tune in again next week for the latest news on and for the African-American community. We want to know what you think of current black issues, so send your comments to Bring It On at WFHB.org. For Bring It On, I'm Jim Sims. And I'm Cornelius Wright. You're listening to Bring It On, Indiana's only public affairs program dedicated to the African-American community. Here on WFHB 91.3 on your radio and live on the web at WFHB.org. Support for WFHB comes from Bread and Roses Nursery offering holistic design and edible landscape services for your home environment. Bread and Roses Nursery plants can be found at the Bloomington Farmer's Market and the Deep Roots Garden Center at the East Side Blooming Foods location. Featuring Saturday open houses from April 29th through June 3rd, more online at breadandrosesnursery.com.
You just heard Justice's Groove, another selection by fusion artist Stanley Clark. It's now time to bring you the events of interest in the black community. For Bring It On, I'm Jim Sims. And I'm Cornelius Wright. And we have a public humanities project, or it's all about African-American history. So community members, you're invited to attend a planning meeting for a public humanities project that focuses on the history of the African-American community in Bloomington, Indiana. This is designed as a cooperative project involving local citizens, including those associated with IU, who will continue our discussion about the ways to preserve and celebrate the experiences of Hoosier African-Americans. Among the topics discussed in the initial meeting was to offer free digital preservation of important family records, photographs, films, and oral history efforts to capture individual voices to write a more inclusive community narrative. The meeting will take place this Saturday, June 10th at 10 a.m., and this is located at the Second Baptist Church Annex, that's 321 North Rogers Street, or on the corner of 8th and Rogers, and 10 a.m., Tell as many folks as you can. We have the bicentennials coming up, so we'd like to get all this captured and documented as best as we can. Um, have some university and community historians, and going to be an excellent, excellent, excellent opportunity. Indeed. If you have an event or happening the African-American community should know about, please send the info directly to the Bring It On staff. Or if you want additional information about a calendar item that you've heard tonight, contact us at bringiton at wfhb.org. And again, our thanks to Track Olympian, um, Pastor, our friend, David Neville, who is head men's and women's track and field coach at Taylor University for joining us this evening to discuss his illustrious track career and experiences as an American Grit participant. Our show's producer is Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Joe Crawford. Our news editor is Michael Nolan. Our board engineer team consists of Jim Thrasher, who was doing it this evening, yes. and Floyd Hobson. Our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam, with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Cornelius Wright. Yes, you are, and I am Jim Sims. Tune in next Monday, June the 12th at 6 p.m. for another exciting edition of Bring It On, right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On, a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.